don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, documenting the undocumented carceral architecture and migrant bodies with Kings Chuck. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Ting Chak, who is a migrant justice organizer in Toronto and she was trained as an architect and she's the author of a forthcoming book about a uh, migrant detention center uh, in, uh, in uh, Canada and that, that precisely links uh, architecture to this uh, work of organizer uh, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello Tings. Hi. Hi. Uh, so, so we're going to talk about this book, um, this book that's about to, to come out. Uh, but first, uh, you recently was kind enough to write uh, a text for the Phenomenalist uh, that you uh, entitled "Racialized Geography and the, I'm sorry, Racialized Geographies and the Fear of Ships." Uh, perhaps we could start this conversation with uh, with you introducing uh, the ideas that you the ideas that you developed in uh, in this text that are very much linked to 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 the rest of the conversation anyway. Um, sure. So the text was really centered around a, a public art performance um, that I was a part of last summer. Um, it was done by a collective of migrant women of color um, in Toronto called Mass Arrival. Um, so that project was a critical restaging of um, the mass arrival of uh, migrant ships on the coast of British Columbia that happened in 2009, carrying uh, 492 Tamil migrants. Um, and so uh, what happened at that point is it really um, kind of started a big flurry of sort of racist hysteria across the country, um, particularly the image of racialized and criminalized um, migrants, particularly ships carrying, you know, black and brown bodies and, and what that what that does um, to, uh, well, the Canadian sort of nationalist idea of, of who belongs, um, who, uh, who, you know, helped kind of create the nation as it is, um, and a whole, you know, slew of themes that, um, for some reason, ships uh, really invoke, um, even though it's a very rare occurrence in Canada, most migrants aren't coming by ships, given our, our geography. Um, uh, yeah. Mm. And I suppose sh uh, um, ships is uh, also what can uh, bridge to their... Um, Uh, to another conversation I've been having on the archipelago with uh, uh, Renisa Mawani uh, about uh, this ship that both of you are very interested uh, interested in, which is uh, the Komagama Maru. Um, can you can you tell us? Uh, I mean, she she has been describing it a little bit, but can you can you maybe mm -hmm. tell us um, what this ship was about and how does it came to? Uh, 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 be part of the, the fear of ships uh, of, of, from the, the, the white Canadian population that you, you're talking about in, in the book, in the text, sorry. Yeah. Um, so we just passed a week ago, I think it was the 23rd, that was um, the centenary. 23rd of May. The 23rd of May, the centenary of the Komagatomaru, um, which uh, carried uh, 300 or so migrants from Punjab. Um, and so basically that ship was denied entry into Canada based on, you know, historical and, you know, pretty contemporary types of uh, legislation that, um, that banned them from entering Canada. Um, so they were kind of docked on in, in kind of uh, in British Columbia for a couple of months. Uh, they were all sent home, um, most to their imprisonment, some to their death. Um, back to, you know, uh, colonial India. Um, and so in relation to the text, I think uh, what's really important is how um, the arrival of different types of ships um, in the history of, 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 I guess, Canada since colonization um, 
has had different responses. So, of course, everyone who's not indigenous to North America or Turtle Island arrived on large ships of some sort, from the early colonial boats to, you know, early settlers and, you know, migrant workers that, you know, built the railways, both in the States and in Canada. Um, uh, so it's really very clear in when you're looking at um, historically this, uh, the arrival of different boats, how they were received. Um, so one comparison I kind of made uh, between the Tamil ships um, or the boats carrying Tamil migrants and uh, the Komagatamaru um, versus a lot of boats of the sec- after the Second World War carrying a lot of um, uh, European migrants and refugees and sort of the public response to the two are very drastically different. Um, and one is very much welcomed and, and fits in with the sort of um, myth-making of national identity in Canada. And the other one is about, uh, you know, some sort of criminal encroachment onto our borders. We need to protect these, you know, fortify our borders, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it was rambling. Uh, and I suppose you, you were you were saying to send those migrants uh, back home. I suppose the back home is with a little quotation marks because that's precisely the problem here, right? It's like each body is being assigned a, a, a home, is being assigned a place that uh, this body should uh, pretty much uh, stay. Uh, uh, and uh, whenever whenever moving from it, it's uh, it's becoming a sort of precarious uh, a precarious body. Uh, uh, and stigmatized as as a migrant, and so uh, what, one thing that that particularly uh, uh, crystallizes stigmatization is the, the notion of uh, status and the notion of uh, of uh, uh, documents, and 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 so that's why we call the we we call the often the uh, the migrants uh, who, who did not have those documents, the undocumented or the sans papier in French, uh, or and. Uh, and uh, that's something we, we've been talking about with uh, Mahmoud uh, Kesharvas in, uh, in a previous conversation about the passport, but that's also something you um, you wrote about in this uh, upcoming book I was mentioning earlier. Uh, so the book's name is uh, Undocumented, The Architecture of Migrant Detention. And um, I have a little assignment for you here. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't get to give many assignments, but uh, can you can you maybe read the the passage that I that I kept uh, I um, I picked from your book precisely about this notion of uh, of status and and uh, that that I think uh, really um, uh, shows uh, the, the absurdity of such a, of the document to begin with. Uh, so that's, that's a quote from, from your book. Uh, well, listen to you. Sure. Status is a fickle thing. It can be taken away from you, and then at any moment it can be lost. It determines your identity, your rights, your access, your freedom. But your name is more than a series of Romanized letters, phonetically transcribed that, when uttered, can never capture its weight. It can never come close to the language your given name was given in. Your place of birth has nothing to do with the treachery of borders, violently imposed onto our bodies, between our families, and throughout the places we call home. And thank you. And um, I, I think uh, something, both of us being trained as architects, uh, that's something we, we definitely share in our way of, uh, of approaching architecture is precisely this, this violence upon the bodies that you, you, you just talked about, because architecture uh, will enforce uh, such a such a political violence with the, the walls and uh, all all the things that that makes it, which uh, which brings us to the to this uh, to this uh, uh, t- architectural typology that is uh, the migrant detention centers that are uh, present uh, in uh, in many places of the world. Uh, in your case, you you particularly paid attention to the Canadians one Canadian ones. Uh, but uh, that's they're pretty much as uh, horrific as uh, as the one that we can find in Europe, and um, and so the the first part of the book is uh, and I should say the book the book is is uh, is illustrated by you as well. It is a sort of uh, a sort of uh, a graphic essay, if I if I may call it this way. And so the first part of the book is a is a, is a sort of out 
a view of the a view of the of those migrant detention center from the outside as a sort of average Canadian citizen would would perceive them in 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 really a sort of banality of, of them. Can you tell us more about it? Um, so one of the, I mean, given the title, it, you know, slightly pay, play on words with the idea of you know without documentation is about the the drawings themselves of um, uh, these prisons and detention centers, which are very absent and actually inaccessible to us. So the first part is about situating these buildings in into our landscapes, into the towns and places that we live. Um, and, and as you said, it's they are very banal institutional places um, that, and because of that, blend quite well into our landscapes. Most people driving by, I mean, these are all taken kind of from uh, the Google Street View, just driving along as I was trying to figure out where all these different spaces were. Um, and I would guess that, you know, the vast majority of people driving by these spaces never think about what's inside of them or even um, that they could even guess that it was for, you know, migrants detained in, in there. Um, so, yeah, the first part was very much about um, situating them into our landscapes. And I think something that people don't necessarily realize is that, um, and uh, you're pointing out in the book, in fact, if we take the example of Canada, which obviously is a big country, is that there's only three detention centers that are specifically mm-hmm. uh, uh, built for this purpose, but mm-hmm. all the others are actually uh, part of provincial pr- prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so... I mean, that, that, I suppose that shows very well how, how those uh, undocumented ma- migrants are, are thought about uh, by, by uh, the authorities in, in, in a sort of cr- criminalized way mm-hmm. when actually the only crime they committed is to be, is, is, is a very, uh, very absurd crime. It's, it's a, their geographical location that is not reinforced by a sort of uh, the status that you were reading about a little bit earlier, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm part of a group called No One is Illegal in Toronto. Um, and and to me, that, that statement, I mean, the name of the organization is very, a statement about uh, the legalization of people based on imposition of borders. Um, and and also forces of displacement that cause people to migrate. And so if we were to call it a crime, that would be about really my, migration itself. Um, and in, in Canada, immigration, um, not having papers, is administrative law. It's a civil law. Um, so uh, it means that according to kind of the, the government they're locking these people up, not for punitive reasons, um, but for administrative. And so that's the way they kind of justify it by using prisons is that they're just held, they're, they're held, they, I mean, the detention centers in Canada are called holding centers. It's just while they're being processed that um, they will be sent home. It's not because they're, um, you know, and it also means that any protections might be offered by the criminal injustice system um, isn't there at all for for um, migrants, but that's a bit of an aside. I guess one thing I'll just carry on with that aside sure. um, that I've learned um, to in learning more about just a prison abolition broadly speaking is um, not trying to reinforce the idea of criminality versus non criminality in terms of who actually gets locked up, because at the end of it, oftentimes it's poor people of color that get criminalized, or in this case, illegalized as without, you know, without status. Um, and so uh, I try, at least in the book, to be very conscious about not pitting sort of the, the good immigrants that really, you know, aren't at fault of anything except for, you know, migration versus the actual deserving criminals you know who who should be who should be incarcerated um if that makes if that makes sense yeah i mean I, in general i suppose when you and i talk about their their carceral system mm-hmm. in, in north america or in europe is that we 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 try to engage it in its whole and without mm-hmm. making uh, uh 
necessary distinction between uh, uh, those who would deserve to be to be locked up and uh, and those who, who, who I mean mm-hmm. that's that's always a problem of of, of legit, legitimizing implicitly things is that if you if you if you struggle to disincarcerate a population it implicitly uh, uh, it implicitly legitimizes the fact that another population might be incarcerated mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. absolutely um uh, so, I mean, in doing this work, it's also about um, kind of intersecting those struggles a little bit more. Um, I think, at least in Canada, the migrant justice and prison abolition don't necessarily come hand in hand all the time. And so working around Migrant Detention Center has been, um, especially in um, working in solidarity with a lot of the migrants detained, uh, is is learning because a lot of people do have complicated histories, you know, maybe criminal histories, and and there is just to me, um, I mean, it's it's very tricky. There's just a lot of strategical moves around what can actually um, change public discourse around how migrants might be criminalized, um, and. Yeah, as you say, um, at risk of um, legitimizing, um, you know, the locking up of, you know, of other populations. Mm, I, I suppose one thing that, that makes uh, uh, the, the link between both populations is, is very much architecture, because architecture in both cases are is being used as uh, for, for its intrinsic violence on the bodies, to uh, to prevent them from escaping from 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 its limits. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, I suppose lo- looking at it as architects is is probably a good way to to realize the, the violence of it in whichever for w- whichever body being held mm-hmm. against his or her will. Mm-hmm. Um, so exactly, and so one of the ways that I think I tried um, to do that is um, looking at some of the maybe the logics of how um, uh, detention centers and as broadly in like um, buildings used for incarceration um, are defined is very much around the idea of the bare minimum like what is needed for uh, human the human body to basically survive in these spaces. Um, so that's one thing I really investigated, comparing not only prisons, um, but basically design standards that are available, ranging from you know refugee camps, international kind of guidelines, um, to prisons, to hospital, to long-term care. You know, just really kind of comparing how that is defined, and oftentimes it is by you know there's three aspects is. Uh, square footage of floor space you have, the cubic volume of airspace you have, and then the, um, um, air, I guess, area of natural light that you must have. So one way is, you know, applying some of the skills that I developed in architecture school is to draw them out as, you know, the plans, axonometric, really compare them uh, kind of one-to-one. Well, I suppose there's there's four pages in the book that particularly manifest uh, what you just described, and uh, with your permission, uh, maybe we'll add them to the to the to the page of the podcast because I think they're they're extremely powerful in in how um, in in once again revealing this violence of architecture on the bodies because you are using you're very much using uh, the uh, what we would call the, the architect's uh, uh, graphic terminology, if I if I may use a linguistic uh, uh, term, um, in in the fact that you're you're also taking a, just like architects always take a standard body to accommodate this body with architecture all around, and uh, and I think uh, b- both of us are interested in in showing how this method is is. Uh, is actually um, uh, reinforcing the, the normative processes that society is ex- is experiencing and is developing. Uh, uh, but in your case, is you're taking this standard body precisely to show their to show how architecture is built around it to to 
to unfold its violence upon him so uh, upon him or her uh, and um, and so so those those series of drawings that shows uh, the minimal the minimal uh, space that her, a body can uh, uh, live in and how how this might affect uh, affect this body are, are I think extremely interesting and um, uh, through, throughout the books you 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 do take a few uh, biographical examples of, of migrants mm -hmm. and um, uh, for example you you have this person who is uh, who's put in um, uh, what, uh, in a segregative uh, segregative um, uh, detention cell uh, so in a sort of uh, isolation that uh, uh, if you could explain to us that'd be great but and you have this uh, you have this uh, strong sentence that uh, you probably collected from one of those people uh, uh, saying that when when you stay too long in this uh, in this cell you you feel that you become part of the walls I, I thought that was a very powerful architectural uh, statement in and how how architecture affects us but can you can you tell us more about it mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry I talked a lot yeah no it's <laughs> fine um, uh, so at, at least in Canada um, people migrants in, in this is specific to migrants that are held in prisons, um, are put into administrative segregation. Um, you know, again, it's it's framed as an administrative, not as a punitive thing. It could be because you know, for you know, safety of it's like safety of the prison population or the guards or to themselves. Um, so we see that sometimes segregation will be used um, very directly to sort of punish people who are resisting. Um, their detention, maybe they're on taking really powerful kind of nonviolent, um, uh, like, you know, d a disobedience, basically, of hunger strikes, that kind of thing, and then they'll put them in segregation. Um, so some of the descriptions in there are from people who were detained, um, just broadly people who are in prisons, regardless of whether you're a migrant or not. And so it's pretty well documented, I guess, that people, and especially in the U.S. where there's a lot about solitary confinement, um, the prolonged effects on the human psyche, basically, um, of being contained in a very, very small cell uh, up to 22 to 23 hours a day um, with in isolation, uh, with uh, minimal or no human contact aside from the guard, um, and you know, from people talking about uh, losing their their ability to see distance or even color because you're you know constantly in this fluorescent light and in kind of um, white walls. Um, and so one of the feelings I think that are is repeated is this idea of being haunted by this very space you're in. Um, Feeling, as you said, like a sense of merging with the space itself, just a lot of you know psychological effects of why people, uh, I mean, international um, bodies have claimed this to be a form of torture. One one of the things that you also uh, talk about in the book is uh, uh, you you were talking about colors, but uh, also the the active prevention to uh, see the horizon. Uh, that's something we take for granted, but uh, I wonder how much being able to always refer to the horizon, if I look right mm -hmm. right now and look through the window and see the horizon, mm -hmm. how much it, as it bodies, it, uh, it balances us. Because that's something you, you evoke in the, in the mm -hmm. case of this woman, mm -hmm. the, the first things she wanted to do when... Mm -hmm. When uh, she got out of the detention center, was to to see the sea because that's that's almost the the horizon par excellence. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even beyond the horizon, it's just a lot of people never get catch a glimpse of the outside, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if for whatever windows you have, it'll be frosted, um, uh, vast majority of the time, and what they call yard for your record is basically just a concrete box often with like a screen above it. So the kinds of um, anything that might help you place yourself is completely removed. So where you're held could essentially be any anywhere. It's very placeless and it's, I think, 
um, meant to heighten your sense of isolation um, uh, from the world, um, including the very like landscape um, that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else that you describe in in the book is, um, I think, uh, particularly prominent in uh, in North North America, uh, probably everywhere. But I think in North America, it's it's, it's really particular in the fact that um, the carceral the entire carceral system is a gigantic business, and and many many people are have a, a monetary interest in within this business, which obviously. Uh, uh, besides the besides the the capitalist takeover on the on on the prison complex uh, uh, and the in- incarceration center complex, uh, uh, creates dependency. Uh, we uh, if if we if somehow we in- we challenge the very program of the of of the carceral program, then we have we have businesses where. That will that will fight to death to actually keep them. So it creates a, it creates, I suppose, non immediate ideological interests that that are very very much present. Could could you tell us about uh, a little bit more about this uh, this situation in, in 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 North America that not everyone is necessarily accustomed with? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the prison industrial complex is is a, a massive kind of industry um, and within that immigration detention in North America is kind of the far, fastest growing segment of that um, and I mean the context is qu- quite different in the US as it is in Canada um, primarily because we don't yet have privately uh, owned um, and privately completely privately constructed prisons which is a case in the United yes, States. I mean, which it, it is. It might appear as shocking to a lot of people, and legitim- legitimately so. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there is the Corrections uh, Corporation of America (CCA), and then the Geo Corp. Those are the two, I think. You know the the two sort of multinationals that operate and and run and own a lot of these centers here. So in Canada, that doesn't quite exist yet. Um, what we are seeing, though, is uh, the uh, privatization of the the s- support systems of that maintain such a uh, network of institutions. So that includes privatized um, security forces or how they are opera- operated. Um, so a lot of these detention centers um, are run by, say, G4S, which is notorious um, as the security. Um, multinational in the world um, and so that's kind of the the scarier trend we are seeing because there are a lot of um, large contracts um, that people are fighting over including construction of them construction construction of the uh, prisons themselves to how they are maintained um, you know how they are furnished um, to every basically how they're run in, in a very everyday way mm-hmm. and that also includes i suppose the, the equipment the food their their the cleaning their i mean it seems it seems like everything has as a monetary interest mm-hmm. in in the entire uh organization of their mm-hmm. of the carceral system right absolutely mm. um so so far we've been trying to be a little bit um, informative I suppose of, of what and, and maybe reflective about what what this uh, this architecture of the carceral center uh, is about but uh, I know you, you were telling me when we were preparing this conversation that you're in general you're more used to talk about your your action as a as an organizer so I think I think it, it's important we, we talk about that as well. Uh, earlier, you described uh, this. Um, you described this uh, 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 de- demonstration uh, of uh, mass arrival, which was only uh, one of them. But could could you maybe t- uh, describe a little bit more what uh, your work consists in? Um, yeah, um, I guess for me, um, the 
as I was looking into detention centers from this kind of more architectural, you know, um, capacity, um, I was also, I have been doing a lot of organizing um, uh, specifically with undocumented and precarious status communities based in Toronto. Um, and, and during um, that time in the past year, um, we got wind of uh, a large um, uh, hunger strike that was happening just two hours outside of Toronto in the Central East Correctional Centre. So this is um, the largest known that we know um, mass action um, that was led by uh, immigration detainees. 191 of them went on a hunger strike. Um, several of them stayed on that hunger strike for as long as 63 days. Um, and so um, so that was something that happened while I was doing this work. And so what was very important to me um, is to, to focus on the resistance of uh, migrants in detention, um, kind of in contrast to the oppressive nature of the architecture, is that people are resisting on a very everyday level. Um, and uh, so specifically in terms of um, the kinds of work uh, that we were doing um, included just we have a, a phone line where people can collect call um, directly to our phones uh, and so that's our direct line of communication especially when there are organized actions inside of how we can help communicate the information out um, sometimes people just need someone to talk to um, and and really learning about the lived realities inside detention. Some of the people we work with, you know, have been detained for six, seven, eight, up to 10 years uh, without charge or trial, as I mentioned. It's administrative law, so there's no kind of, you know, charges being laid. Um, and they, and it's indefinite. They have no idea when they might be released or deported. Um, and so it's, um, it's very important to me to, I guess, ground that work and also uh, center the voices of people who are actually in detention um, and privilege, maybe less the kind of, you know, necessarily the architectural sort of side of it, because at the end of it, it's about people who experience them. Um, yeah. Also, maybe if I just go back uh, for a moment to the, to the architecture uh, side of mm -hmm. it, uh, when we were preparing this conversation, uh, we were talking about this um, this uh, recent campaign for a pledge a pledge of architects not to design uh, uh, any form of uh, torture space, uh, uh, whatever they might be. And, and I mean, I think we both have our our concerns for uh, the the way the way this campaign operates and the, the goals it's trying to achieve as as being maybe a, a too, too little compared to the, the humongous work that would need to be done but it, it obviously ought to be noticed uh, uh, in in, um, in the actions that are being made within the architectural world that is highly highly insensitivized to, to those issues and to the power that to the violent powers that architecture has so uh, could you maybe tell us a little bit about about this campaign and and maybe what your what your look on it is uh, could be. Um, sure. So, the campaign is a, a U.S. based campaign um, led by the architects, designers, and planners for social responsibility, um, and it was born out of a larger campaign to get architects to pledge not to design prisons, so to boycott prison uh, design altogether. And so that's something that's been happening over the past decade. But it's in most recent form and what has really gotten the immediate attention, um, the public attention as well, is, is by focusing on what is called the worst of the worst. So solitary confinement units and uh, execution chambers. Um, so they uh, are taking a very much a kind of human rights approach to this campaign, which there's a lot to discuss about you know that as an approach but that is what they've taken 
by saying that, you know, under US, UN conventions, um, anyone held for more than 15 days in solitary confinement, um, that is considered a form of torture. And since architects under the American Institute of Architects um, Code of Ethics, which is like, I guess, a pledge already, um, it, it states that all architects have to uphold human rights in all the work they do. And so that is how the whole campaign is framed around. It's like architects um, need to uphold human rights. Therefore, they can't build things that are violating human rights, um, namely, you know, like execution chambers and solitary confinement units. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, large issues with that is that by focusing on the worst of the worst, we're not really thinking about um, sort of the, the systemic forces um, or questioning prisons more broadly. Um, question uh, who gets criminalized, who gets detained, um, and, and, and really why. And I think sometimes, um, I think they've gotten a lot of success in the campaign, um, but it can, I think, distract from having those larger questions. At the same time, I mean, this is something I struggled with in the book, is that, I mean, I never really talk about prison abolition in the book or even necessarily abolition of migrant detention centers. I think um, the approach that I took was more about, okay, here, let's reveal some of these spaces like as, as pe- we don't know, you know, we can't see. Um, and with the hope that people come to some conclusion of that sort. Because when you tell people generally saying prison abolition, um, they will immediately think or dismiss your argument. <laughs> Oftentimes, that's what I've come across. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's a constant struggle. Um, I, I think it's very much uh, uh, in, in between each of your lines that it's the manifesto that's that's behind it. So yeah. I, I don't think you should get too worried about yeah. about it. But maybe for a next a next work, you, you might want to be uh, explicit about it. I don't know. I, 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 uh, um, and uh, I apologize for always going back to to architecture. It's, a, it's obviously a sort of obsession. But um, okay. yeah, but uh, uh, go, going back to it once again and and talking about this pledge and and uh, maybe uh, comparing it to another discipline that has a tremendous power on, on the bodies, uh, probably even higher than architecture itself. Uh, and um, and uh, if we look at the the way uh, uh, physicians and doctors of all kinds have to take the Hippocratic uh, oath. Uh, in um, in uh, that that defines the, or at least should define the the discipline of medicine as as being uh, in no way um, uh, actively detrimental to the body that it's uh, that it's subject to this discipline. Um, it seems to be something that does not that could not possibly apply to architecture, at least in my understanding of architecture as being inherently violent and therefore there is no healing architecture as it was there is there is uh, architectures that are uh, that can use their violence in such a way that that is it's actually not detrimental or uh, to to the bodies that it hosts mm-hmm. but this violence is always here so somehow uh, uh, it's 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 a little bit of an extreme way to say it but the violence that we find in the sol- solitary uh, confinement cell to a le- to a much lesser degree, but to a to a similar uh, uh, essence, is also contained in every wall that surrounds us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, based based on this interpretation, somehow the, the only Hippocratic Hippocratic oath that architects can take would be not to design anything, <laughs> which which I suppose is not even it's it's absolutely not the manifestos that I that I would like to carry. I mm-hmm. think I think we can uh, we can be uh, much more uh, politically active in in this understanding of violence that architecture carries. I, I, I don't know if you agree with me or mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah. I think one of the things I wanted to kind of suggest in the book is looking at how 
um, mass incarceration and kind of operates, I don't want to say scale, but some sort of um, kind of kind of kind of continuum of different levels of state control in terms that can be compared to, you know, mass social housing or, you know, from uh, any type of basically institutional settings and talk about schools and all sorts of things in that in that way um because there's a tendency to think of prisons as some much more extreme version or um and i think that's part of what the work is about is to demystify like what people think of prisons i think there's a lot of that in popular media around you know the gang violence or like you know they want to imagine dungeons and dark cells and dirty and like but at this, it's, most of the time, it's just actually really banal institution settings that we are very familiar with because we live in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, precisely. Right now, we're recording this conversation in an apartment uh, with a door that's probably being locked right now. Uh, I'm not sure whether I locked it or not, but uh, that potentially is locked. And that very much, the, the walls operate in a very similar way in their prevention of having non-authorized bodies to come in, in, in the same way that uh, countries with walls uh, and borders uh, mm-hmm. operate, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, once again, it's a matter of degree, it's a matter of intensity. It's not the same thing to be locked out of a, locked out of a private property uh, apartment than to be locked in a, a prison cell. But we're we're dealing with the same kind of forces, only only with a different various degrees, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it's also related, I think, to um, back to thinking about the human body is the the you know individualization of uh, or how we kind of divide up um, space um, and sort of cellularize our our different environments. And so that's what I mean in terms of the bare minimum kind mm. of drawings that we're referring to um the other side of it is looking at like sort of micro condominium um uh and, and just comparing what that actually looks like because it it gets to a point where it does shockingly look like a prison cell <laughs> well and we're we're both uh for for different reasons we're both very familiar with uh, uh the housing situation in hong kong and that's probably a, a pretty extreme example of uh of uh of uh, families living in very very small spaces, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, one, one thing uh, I, I would like to uh, uh, finish our conversation with is uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, some things that would help us to 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 think of uh, all those issues with a, a little bit of, uh, if not optimistic, at least a positive positive way. Uh, in uh, February 21st, 2013, and uh, uh, t- Toronto became what's called a sanctuary city, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, your hometown of Hamilton, I think, followed a year later, if I remember correctly. Uh, and and uh, I supposed uh, if I if I generalize my case uh, uh, of not knowing what was a sanctuary city a few years ago. Uh, uh, we should probably explain explain what this is about, but um, uh, I think this is a very very important aspect of uh, of um, uh, the way uh, North America has been also dealing with immigration uh, uh, versus uh, the way Europe is is dealing with it. So, could you could you could you describe to us a little bit what a sanctuary city is and and maybe uh, when it's when it started in uh, in the mid eighties? Yeah. Um, and so the sanctuary movement broadly, as you mentioned, really started in um, the States um, among um, un- undocumented Central American um, migrants, particularly. Um, and so a lot of that uh, was also related to faith-based organizations um, and the tradition of, you know, uh, keeping people in sanctuary uh you know, as faith-based, like places like churches or mosques are supposed to be, you know, out of bounds for um, law enforcement and immigration enforcement. Supposedly. Supposedly, which is, yes. Um, so in Toronto, uh, it, it it looks a, a slightly different, um, but, I mean, organizing, similar types of organizing have been hap- happening for decades. Um, 
uh, fighting for... I mean, let me just explain what Sanctuary City did for... So Sanctuary City is um, basically about um, access to essential services for residents in a city um, and ensuring that um, people should be able to live, you know, dignified lives, be able to access schooling, be able to access, you know... um, healthcare clinics to all sorts of, you know, shelters or uh, food banks, that kind of thing, without uh, their immigration status being a barrier. And so how this has looked in Toronto, and I can only speak about that case, is that for the past 10 years that have been very specific campaigns targeted at different service sites, so um, led by people who were um, undocumented. So for instance, um, a few years ago, there was uh, two siblings uh, attending a school in Toronto, and they were arrested at their school during school hours by the police and held in immigration detention, uh, also as a way to um, basically, they knew that their parents would come and get them, and they knew that their parents were undocumented. Mm. And so that really um, sparked a large public outcry and mobilization Uh, around that and start demanding that, you know, schools need to be sanctuary sites, that people should be able to access um, immigration, uh, access um, essential services regardless of immigration status. And so the sanctuary city vote comes from a lot of that ground up organizing uh, before the city kind of passed a citywide um, commitment uh, that at least municipal services um, will be provided to all its residents. Um, There's a long way to go in terms of, I mean, there's two ways to think about it. One way of why it's really important is the very claiming of public spaces as being um, places that we protect our communities against law enforcement, immigration enforcement, like spaces that we are actually literally pushing them out of. Mm -hmm. Um, And that um, building networks of that within a city from service to service site is um, is trying to create slightly alternative um, uh, uh, spaces where I guess immigration enforcement is not or, or that's defying the kind of national immigration laws mm-hmm. in place. And one maybe has to imagine the, the, the absolutely continuous fear of any undocumented migrant in Europe or, or in Arizona, for example, of, of, um, of being arrested by just any random uh, po- police officer uh, for whichever reason and to eventually be, be deported or to be incarcerated or deported. Like mm-hmm. This is something that can happen at any moment, whereas mm-hmm. in sanctuary cities, that's something that's been that's been uh, a little bit uh, withdrew from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's very much still a, a precariousness to it, but yeah. at least there's not this continuous fear of having any random police officer yeah. arresting you. In Toronto, um, uh, the whole sanctuary movement um, has been uh, framed as access without fear. Um, which came from directly organizing with, um, at, at one point, about over 10 years ago, working with uh, women in, in detention centers um, who uh, all kind of um, expressed that the most difficult part about living undocumented in a city is the fear that comes with uh, living in daily life. And as you mentioned, um, you know, the very existence of an undocumented person means the constant threat of detention and deportation um, and that could happen everywhere so it's a way of thinking about the city as filled with borders filled with checkpoints that I think people with a privilege of status don't don't experience um, you you know you couldn't imagine that perhaps um, you know, Going to a library could be a potentially, you know, dangerous place where you could get reported um, and then detained and then deported. Um, and so the importance of creating sanctuary, we like to call it more solidarity city, is about making more of those um, spaces that are s- slightly safer for people um, to be in. And it's also about, you know, building networks of um, mutual aid 
um, where people have an understanding that, you know, social service providers aren't in the business of enforcing immigration law. Um, and in the same way, back to sort of the prisons is prisons shouldn't be used to enforce immigration law. Um, and so we have to look at how we can actually resist immigration policy on a very daily level. I mean, we work in these libraries, we work in these health clinics and shelters. Um, we are enforcing immigration law when we deny people on the basis of status. And how do we start to um, take back that from municipal sites, which has to go on to, we, you know, in, in Canada, it's divided up in different jurisdictions to provincial level to the federal level. Um, to ensure that that is a reality, because the municipal services are only a small fraction of essential services in the city. Mm -hmm. Well, Ting, thank you so much. Uh, we're um, very much looking forward to see uh, uh, the book undocumented uh, 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 being released in a few in a few weeks. Uh, and uh, for once, we're going to finish the podcast with a. a a slightly different uh, uh, way, which would be you reading again from uh, a short poem that you wrote, uh, uh, not for this book, but actually for the, the text on the numberless the racialized geographies and the fear of ships. Uh, thank you, Tings. Um, okay. Mother tiptoes through her days, guarding everything she holds dear, to evade detection, to remain unseen to relinquish her political body for a provisional place in this world. As she says, if there's one thing we are good at, it's mimicry, a way to eat, move, and sleep, a way to revere, destroy, and dream. I ask her if we are getting any closer. Racialized geographies are not just lines in the sand, but our daily performances her body does not forget. They are sights, they take shape, they speak the where and how, and on whose bodies violence is felt. She is the sexualized, denied, and detained. Her body is not hers. No bleach, no shrouds to shun the sun can fulfill the desire of her body, body to be unmarked. She is not getting any closer. She no longer spits on the ground, shouts to be heard, squats when she's tired, even if her body knows best. She no longer talks when she's eating, eat when she's talking, or eats from the earth. She no longer pees in the park, sleeps in the park, intuits and walks undisciplined in the park. Out of place and in her place, she performs these enforcement rituals. She knows that she's not getting any closer. What is taken can never be returned whole. A way to feel the sting of a pinch, to bear our arms and welcome the sun, to find wholeness on this land. Let us undo, unravel, unlearn, and untame. Take refuge in and through and with all living bodies. Sully this body in order to love our own. Then we might know a world in which she no longer tiptoes through her days.